Welcome to Dulles. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and renewal of our world. We're so glad you're listening. Father God, you are without equal. You are so good, our world is not. Humans everywhere try to make sense out of anti-creation experiences like war, division, hunger, loneliness, and relational hurt. Jesus, I know what it is to feel hurt by people. You know what it is to feel hurt by people. As my church prays together this month, please work your love deep into me so that I may forgive those who've hurt me just as I need your forgiveness. Make me healthy as I replace ill will toward others with your goodwill. Jesus, may I walk in confidence that you are repairing our world, beginning with me. Thank you for loving me and for using me and my church to love others well. Amen. The bad news uh, for you, if you're a human being, is that you are going to experience hurt by the hands of other human beings. And sometimes the hurt will be deep. And the pain that is caused will be deep pain. If you're human, it's unavoidable. And sadly, as technologically advanced as we are as a culture, and I'm going to just speak to this country here, uh, as much as America leads the world in many ways, from inventions and education, or, um, we can isolate and attempt to isolate and protect ourselves from hurt, just like anybody else. And it happens, it's, it's just rampant. In every part of our society today, studies show that people are protecting themselves. We want community following COVID. We really are starving for it. We were made for community. We need it. And yet we have this, this tension inside of us that as hungry as we are for connection and acceptance and love, we also regard it because we've been hurt and we know what people can do to people. You're going to be hurt in this life. You're going to be mistreated. And what's even challenging to add to this truth, this reality, is you're, it's going to happen to you multiple times. And for some of us, and I'd say for all of us, during certain seasons, it will happen multiple times a month. And it can really affect the way we, rather than see the world as an opportunity to extend love and compassion and grace and mercy the way our God has offered his remarkable love to us, we in, instead can withdraw. And it can even affect the way we gather in church. I think a lot of people just historically and certainly today go to church to be encouraged, to be reminded of who God is. The thought of walking out of our doors and actually being light and salt, and good, and hope to others. Some have lost that because of the, the pain they carry and their apprehension with people, with humans. Being hurt and mistreated in life, it's natural. 
It's, it's, it's a natural result of living life. What is unnatural is forgiveness. And the word is actually supernatural. Forgiveness is, is supernatural. It's a supernatural gift that God has given us to allow us to embody him even in the context of hurt. Forgiveness allows us to be voices of hope rather than voices of cynicism or voices of pain, of harshness, of defensiveness or quick reactions. We can actually be voices of life and good and compassion and hope even while in the context of hurt, even in the context of pain. Practically speaking, forgiveness is replacing ill will with goodwill. No longer harboring such anger that you want, you want them to feel some of the hurt that you felt. You want retribution. You would love to say those angry words to them. You just want the opportunity. Instead, forgiveness unleashes in you the ability to Maybe, maybe, not, maybe it's not appropriate to walk up and hug them. Maybe they're not in a healthy place to receive. Maybe, maybe that's not what God's asking. Maybe he wants you to actually pray for good in their life. Maybe the first step for us in offering forgiveness and stepping into goodwill for someone who's wounded us is to pray that God would, would heal them, whatever that means, whatever that looks like. We have this sense of justice when we carry anger. We, we can excuse it. We can, and, and, and not that anger, anger isn't actually unforgiveness. There are times where anger and our emotion from hurt is appropriate. It's what's real. But there's this sense of retribution or I'm going to hold the person accountable by not forgiving them. That only poisons us. And we said last week, that unforgiveness is like drinking poison. It's like you drinking poison, waiting for the, the, the person who hurt you to die. When actually all it really does, maybe your unforgiveness causes them some discomfort. Maybe it makes things a little awkward. What unforgiveness actually does is it becomes toxic to you. Forgiveness is the supernatural gift of Jesus extending into us the ability to be alive. Even, even after being hurt or mistreated or betrayed or lied to, we actually can still speak and live mercy and good and life. When I was 15, my church that I grew up in built a gymnasium for our church and, and, and for the larger community. And my buddy Wayne and I, uh, we were the same age, we were 15, we snuck in one night right after construction was finished we, we found, a, I don't remember how, but there was a door that was cracked open, and we were like, we're the first ones, we're the first ones to walk in this place, you know, and our church was pretty, we, we were a church of about 800 people, and we, it was just a big deal to us that we're the first ones to be in here, you know, um, and we discovered wet concrete in the men's bathroom between the shower stalls, and decided to write our nicknames in the, in the concrete. Uh, our friend group of five or six of us that played sports together and just we were we were close friends in church we all had nicknames for each other and I mean how stupid can you be you know it's like 
At some point in my teenage years, the clue phone was ringing, and I don't know if I answered it at 18 or 19, but I certainly wasn't answering it at 15. So we wrote our names in the concrete, and the church staff of, I don't know, 10 or 11 paid staff that were just loving people. Pastor Wickfield was such a dear man. He's, he's, uh, I, I just chatted with him not long ago. He's 96 years old. Uh, such sweet people who cared about the community. They were livid. They were so angry with us. And I, the worship leader's name was Tom. I mean, I remember he, we sat in his office and he just, it wasn't inappropriate. His anger wasn't, he didn't, he wasn't ugly. He was just like, guys, this is, people gave money. This took years for us to build. This is for the community. What are you, what, why would you do this? We haven't even opened. We haven't had our grand opening. And I, I just remember feeling, you know, just wow. And then to watch them forgive us. Just the various ways. When Pastor Wakefield came up and put his arm around us, you guys are going to change the world. You know, I believe in you guys. It was actually an early experience in my life of, of seeing forgiven, forgiveness offered to me when I didn't feel like I deserved it. There are many in our world today, and I have conversations with quite a few people throughout the months and at coffees and in different contexts, who want to be free of the hurt that they've experienced, the pain that they've carried, the anger they've carried. They, they actually want to be free, and they're willing to forgive. Hearing and learning that, you know, not only does Jesus offer us forgiveness, but he gives us forgiveness as a gift so that we can be free. We don't have to carry the weight of the, the anger anymore. They want it. This has been a hot conversation this, this month in this series. There are so many people who want, they're actually willing, like, I, I will forgive, but I can't seem to forgive because I can't forget. And this is speaking to the misnomer, and I hear it so often. It's ubiquitous in church and outside of church, outside of church culture, the idea that to truly have forgiven someone who wronged me, I must forget that it happened. People will ask me, I mean, isn't that a requirement? Like, I haven't actually forgiven because I haven't forgotten what they did to me. And this, this just isn't true. We're going to look at this today. And I, I, I had the sense last week, coming into our morning, that there would be people here in our church family that would be freed in learning that you, don't, you can forgive without necessarily reconciling. Sometimes it's not healthy to reconcile if the person who wounded you isn't, doesn't want reconciliation or isn't healthy, that's actually not exactly true that you, you have to reconcile back to the previous state of the relationship in order to offer forgiveness. And today, my sense coming in was that it would be freeing for some, maybe many of us, to learn the truth that you don't actually have to forget what was done to you in order to genuinely forgive a person. I believe you can trace the idea of, well, I, I, I can't forgive if I haven't forgotten that idea back to the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament. God is speaking through Jeremiah to the nation Israel when God says, I will forgive their sins and remember them no more. 
And that one statement has led to the idea that, oh, I guess forgiveness means you have to erase, it has to be gone from your memory. And this causes people to just be paralyzed. I want to be free of this. This has been such a weight for months or for years, but I can't get past the forgetting part. And that's actually not what this says. Uh, John Ortberg, who, who really inspired a lot of this series, and I've, I've mentioned John Ortberg before. He's a teacher, a pastor on the West Coast. He wrote about this. The idea here, he says, of God saying, I will forgive their sins and I'll remember their sins no more. The idea here is not that God has amnesia or he suddenly has trouble bringing back things to his recall. It's that God loves you and feels about you, wills your good just as strongly as if you had never done wrong. That's what God is speaking through Jeremiah here. It's not that God doesn't remember what Israel had done. It's that he loves them so much, he will treat them as if the wrong had never happened. So I want to look at some examples here. One coming from Acts 1, where very healthy church leaders, very healthy followers of Jesus are actually recalling a very deep, painful hurt. Uh, a couple examples we're going to look at. One is in Acts 1. This is when the disciples and many followers in Jerusalem are with Jesus, thinking he's about to overthrow the Roman Empire and establish a throne in Jerusalem. And they still, after his resurrection, they still think that's, that's the, the end game. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority. But here's what I want you to focus on is what Jesus is saying. You're worried about my return or you're worried about when I'm going to overthrow. You're worried about when I'm going to establish on earth the political authority that you think I came to establish. This is what I actually want you to think about. And this, this is his commissioning. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. You will be my light, my voices of hope. You will be the embodiment of Jesus. Paul would later describe the church, the people of the church, as the body of Jesus. Walking and speaking in the world where the world sees the image of God in us. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right here in the immediate city, in all of Judea, the surrounding region, if you want to think like the county or the surrounding counties, in Samaria, where the outsiders live, and to the ends of the earth. You are actually going to focus not on when I overthrow the Roman Empire. You're going to actually do what I came to be on planet earth. You're going to extend the embodiment of my reality and love to the world. Okay, so the disciples, the 120 people that we know are in this context in Jerusalem, in this gathering with Jesus, they now embody Jesus. He calls them his witnesses. In other words, they're healthy. They're not harboring things like unforgiveness. They're ready to start the church. This is the day the first church began. So you're talking about a healthy group of people. This is what comes next. So in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120 uh, immediate followers there in this part of Jerusalem, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas. So here is Peter and the disciples and the larger group that is now becoming the church of Jerusalem 
remembering what Judas had done to betray Jesus. Jesus went to the cross in practical human terms because Judas betrayed him to the Roman guard, to Pilate. So if forgiveness, which we know Peter's walking in forgiveness, he's about to be a part of starting, establishing the first church. If he is forgiven, isn't it interesting that he's recalling in great detail one of the most painful things they'd ever seen happen in their lifetime. The Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. This is straight up Peter and the others just recalling, remembering. that Judas had horrifically betrayed Jesus. He goes on. Uh, he was one of our number, one of the 12 of us. Judas was one of the 12 of us and shared in our ministry. With the payment that he received, the 30 silver coins, he betrayed Jesus for a bag of silver. For the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, and there he took his own life and fell headlong. His body burst open. I mean, this is graphic detail. Sorry, kiddos are in the room. And his intestines spilled out. I mean, talk about remembering. This is dispelling the intention of reading this and putting this on the screen today is to help you dispel the idea that in order to truly forgive and walk as an embodiment, as, a, as an imager of God, you have to completely forget, like your mind has been erased, the wrong that was done to you. That's just not, it's just not reality, and it wasn't reality for the disciples. That field became known all around Jerusalem. Verse 19, everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field, in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. So now he's saying, everybody in the city remembers. It was pretty horrific. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. So it was like everybody's kind of avoiding like, oh, this is where that really bad thing happened. And may another one take his place of leadership. Therefore, Peter says, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. The Lord Jesus, and, and, and they choose Matthias, the new 12th disciple to replace Judas. Okay, so maybe it's easier for us to accept, uh, accept this, this remembering of something bad that happened because that person's dead. Judas is dead. So maybe, maybe it's, that's appropriate or it, it has something to do with the one who did the really bad thing to Jesus is dead now so we can talk about it or we can remember it. Judas, Peter's not gossiping. He's just simply recalling the context. This is why we need to replace Someone to be a, 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 an apostle of Jesus in the city. If, it's, if, if the notion is, well, okay, Judas is gone, so I guess they can, they can remember, maybe that's somehow appropriate. Let's, let's look at an example of someone who hurt Jesus who's still alive. Jesus has cooked breakfast. This is after his resurrection. Many, many people are experiencing him and encountering him alive after seeing him crucified. This is one of those many encounters. Jesus is on the shore and actually cooking breakfast. He ends up frying fish for the disciples who are coming in on their boats. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Meaning, do you love me more than you love your title or your position? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then Jesus said, feed my lambs. He's, he's setting him up here to be a pastor, to, have, to, to commission him as a shepherd. 
Very oddly, I remember growing up in church as a kid, Jesus asked the question a second time. Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? This is the second time. Peter's like, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. This has become known in biblical scholarship as redemptive remembering. Jesus is three times around a fire giving him sensory memory to the night of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion when Peter denied Jesus three times around a fire. Three times Peter was asked the question, don't you know him? Wait, aren't you one of his followers? And three times he denied him. And now Jesus is intentionally recalling that very painful betrayal or denial of himself, not to hurt Peter, but to say to him, just as you carry the guilt, Peter, just as I know this is haunting you, that you denied me those three times, I'm recalling three times, I'm reminding you three times of that, that moment so that you understand my heart for you is to commission you. You're going to be a great pastor. Feed my sheep. Take care of my people. This is an instance where Jesus has clearly forgiven Peter. He's commissioning him. He's calling him to go into the world with love, but he's also remembering. And again, you know, we're going to go through one more longer example here, the example of Joseph. And my hope here today is that if you have struggled to forgive or you've, you've, you equate forgiveness with it's no longer in my mind, I can no longer, I'm no longer triggered, the reality is you will be in situations, you will be in settings, most likely in your life, where something that's said or something visual reminds you of the hurt that was done to you. This is just human nature. It happens to all of us. That does not mean you haven't forgiven a person. And it does not mean that you can't forgive them. When this, when I realized this, when I learned the truth of this years ago, this was so liberating for me. And it's not that anyone's lied to you. It's not that churches have misled you. It's just a natural understanding that if God says in Jeremiah that he'll, he'll remember our sins no more, and it just becomes part of the culture, part of church culture, that we must somehow get to the point of completely erasing the event in my life that hurt me so deeply as if it never happened. And so because I can't do that, I guess I'm not free. I guess I'm still unforgiving. It's not true. I mean, Jesus is one of the deep woundings of Jesus. We like to think, I mean, we, we tend to think of the physical crucifixion. It may be that the deepest wound of Jesus that night was his disciple and close friend denying, even knowing him. Jesus remembers it well, and he's using that to actually send Peter into church leadership. A long time ago, Amy and I, in the house we lived in, we, we had neighbors over for dinner one night. And one of the neighbors was leaving. I think he was the first to leave, actually. I walked him to the door, and he said, Hey, Brad, um, I need to ask you to forgive me for something. And I was like, I, I, I 
thought it was a joke at first. And, you know, so I kind of did that awkward laugh, like, yeah, I, don't under, I don't understand the joke. You, you didn't set up this joke right, you know. And then I realized he was serious. Uh, and he said, listen, you guys, sometimes you host events and have people over like us tonight. And you will, you will park your car down the street. I never parked, like, in front of his mailbox. I was always careful. But I would park with part of my car on what would be, you know, his, his curb. And often that curb is empty. I just never thought of it. And he said, it, I don't know what it is, but it, 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 it made me really angry last year that you would do this sometimes. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. He was like, no, 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 it's over. I'm good now, but I got so angry with you. I wasn't talking to you. And maybe, and I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't really know that we had this tension. I just didn't know it. I would wave, hey. And uh, he said, I was so angry with you. I need to ask you to forgive me for being angry. And I remember that night. It was, so, it was such a weird moment because I said, I, um, I don't need to forgive you. And I did. I said, oh, my gosh, you're forgiven. Oh, it's not. But in my mind, I knew I don't need to forgive him because there, there was nothing to forgive. In his mind and heart, he needed to make something right with me. But technically, by definition, I could not forgive him because I wasn't aware. And I say this, I give this example, because it was, it was, it was kind of a turning point for me when that little that conversation happened in terms of forgetting and forgetting where it was just another piece of the puzzle. You actually cannot forgive if you don't remember. If you don't remember the pain or the hurt, you actually cannot offer true forgiveness. Where you had ill will, you had something against them, you wanted to see something happen to them, you would like to, in that rehearsing in your mind, that moment where you could say those ugly words, and now you've replaced those thoughts and motivations with goodwill. When you didn't even know there was an offense, you can't actually forgive. It's not needed. So I just loved him and said, oh my gosh, you know, you're such a good neighbor. And, and I hope this makes sense that technically that's not, forgiveness can't be offered because there was, there was no ill will that I had for him or his anger. So let's go into this last example. Joseph, the story of Joseph. This is dramatic. This, this could be a remarkable motion picture. The details of the story are epic Genesis begins with creation and God's design of humans to reflect him and image him, his character, his creative ability. We actually are made in the image of the creator. So Genesis begins with this desire for humans to be this remarkable reflection of who he is. And Genesis ends with this tragic story of the man of Joseph that doesn't end so tragically, actually. And it shows just how low humans have fallen. Joseph's brothers, he has many brothers, 12 brothers were jealous of him. He was the youngest. They become deeply jealous of him. They thought that their father loved him, and it says that he did, and this was a little bit of dysfunction in his family. Loved him more than them, and so their jealousy just grew, and they began scheming how to end his life. Now Israel, who was Jacob, Loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, and that is dysfunctional. And yeah, so you get some of this 
because he had been born to him in his old age. Okay, well, so maybe we understand a little bit of the sentimental. And he made an ornate robe for him. And apparently his brothers interpreted that as, oh my gosh, he gives him lavish gifts that he doesn't give us. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any, any of them, they hated him. And they could not speak a kind word to him. Now later one day, Joseph is actually looking for his brothers. And he's asking and he's told, they've moved on from here. The man answered, I heard the, the, your brothers say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said of each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal had devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of this dreamer. We'll see what comes of his dreams. Now, one of the brothers, Reuben, thought it was a bad idea. <laughs> like, hello, of course, it, it's, we, we should not kill our brother. This is, not, this is not a good idea. So he talks them out of killing him. And then it's, uh, it's Judah who suggests that they sell him into slavery to one of the caravans that's nearby, near this, this town of Dothan. And they see this, this caravan of Ishmaelites, and they sell their younger brother into slavery. The caravan goes on to Egypt, and they sell him again to the captain of Pharaoh's guard, like the head of the secret service. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. That's an interesting message in its in and of itself, he's sold into slavery twice, but we're told God is with him. We'll get back to that point in a future message. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. That's the language that, that is emphasizing, wow, he has God's favor. He's actually becoming a person of influence. Now, because of God's favor, even though he'd been sold into slavery by his brothers, I mean, it's horrific. You know, what sibling does that? Potiphar puts him in charge of everything. So, okay, wow. Maybe it's easy to forget what your brothers have done to you, even as bad as it was, when you see God's favor and now you have this influence in the, the guard, the senior guard of Pharaoh. Well, then Potiphar's wife, how do I say this, in the 21st century, hits on Joseph. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. Uh, this is where the story, becomes, if it's not already rated R, when the motion picture that I see someday, I'd love to be a producer in this, this goes very rated R here. Uh, she wants to sleep with him. Joseph says, are you kidding me? Not only would this offend my boss and your husband, it would offend God. Absolutely not. And he just remains this man of integrity. And so she responds by accusing him of pursuing her. And actually, it's like attempted rape in her screaming and yelling and the guards come. And he's thrown into prison. Just like that. The good and the favor and his influence in Potiphar's house. In verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. Again, that's another message for another day. 
He showed him, God showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And his influence grows. And he actually ends up leading and and interpreting dreams, not just for the prison warden, but then for Pharaoh himself. And you see God with him again. Okay, so now maybe he's gaining influence again. He's this leader that God is using. So maybe it's easier for him to forget what started all of this and how his brothers mistreated is not the word, sold to him as a slave. Maybe it's easy to forget because now good things are happening, even in prison. The cycle continues. It continues in Joseph's story, and I'm, 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 I'm fast-forwarding here a bit, until a famine reaches the land where his brothers and his father live, and the famine is threatening their lives. And so Joseph's brothers make their way to Egypt to try to find food, to try to find maybe a temporary place to live for a few years. And Joseph is now second in rank in the kingdom of Egypt. He's number two in the country only under Pharaoh because of God's favor and because of the influence and because Joseph would not compromise. And he remained a man of integrity. God just continued to use his voice, whether in the secret service, senior officer's home, or whether in prison. And he has earned Pharaoh's trust so much so that he's now second in the entire nation. And when the brothers arrive and there's this crazy encounter, Joseph realizes, this is my bro- these are my brothers. And they think he's long since dead and had died in slavery years ago. And the emotion that fills Joseph, he doesn't reveal right away. He's collecting himself. He realizes they're in trouble, and they're here because they don't want to starve. He finds out their father is still alive. This is a dramatic, detailed story, but not only does he forgive them, and you already see at this point he's already forgiven them. They don't even know he's alive, and he's already forgiven them. While remembering every detail of what they'd done to him, we see that. We see in his recall, he remembers well. They sold him in their jealousy into slavery, and he ended up in prison because of it. He ended up falsely, wrongly accused because of their decision, because of their actions. He wants to feed them and take care of them. It's as if Joseph might actually be a foreshadow of the story Jesus would tell of the prodigal father. We see so much of that imagery of God's heart in Joseph that we would later hear in Jesus' heart. Of the hurtful child in God's heart of mercy. Genesis 45, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one left with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, now you think he's weeping out of anger or rage? No, he's forgiven them long since. He's weeping out of joy. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. This is one of those, like, if you can imagine a scene in a movie where it's like, dang, he's alive. He's the vice president 
of the kingdom. We're in the biggest trouble we've ever been in in our lives. They're speechless. But Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Again, this isn't hate language. This isn't a finger in their face. He's recalling what they had done to him so that they would believe this is really you. You remember what we did to you. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years, for two years now, there's been a famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Joseph's not saying, this was God's plan all along. He wanted you to mistreat me. He wants humans to mistreat each other. What he's saying is God is so redeeming in his, create, his creative work that he can take the ill will, the hate, the jealousy, and actually turn it, if we allow him to, he can turn the results into his plan. He actually set me up in prison as a future rescuer of not just the land, not just the nation of Egypt, but of you. The ones who hated me. Hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks. You know the, the story of the Exodus? The, Israels are in, the Israelites are enslaved and they cross through the Red Sea. Moses, this is the beginning of that. This is how all the people of Israel end up in Egypt. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have. And this is a beautiful story. And of course, it turns again when Pharaoh becomes, you know, in a future generation, hateful. Pharaoh gave Joseph's father and brothers the best land available for their crops, for their, their livestock. Joseph had already grown in his faith and forgiveness to see that though what they had done was so catastrophic, God was using Joseph to reclaim many people's lives, including the ones who had wounded him. I don't know if you can offer reconciliation like this to someone. We, we spent last Sunday on that, and if you missed it, you can, you can catch up on our podcast. I don't know if it's appropriate. I don't know if the, the person that hurt you is toxic, and you need a healthy boundary with that person. These stories of reconciliation are beautiful, where Joseph gets to know his brothers again. But what I can tell you today is you do not have to forget the hurt, the pain, you don't have to erase from your future moments where you remember and you feel the cutting pain again of how you were mistreated, how you were lied to, to offer what God has offered you, forgiveness. You actually have the ability to remember the pain, to recall the betrayal, while also wishing goodwill for the person. I, I'm convinced that Joseph's greatest prison, the, the most threatening prison he faced, was the prison of unforgiveness. 
He ended up being a voice of life and rescue and mercy. He could image God because he could forgive his brothers. So I'm going to end with this story, and I, I, I told Ed Allen this story at, at lunch a couple years ago. Ed is the pastor of Gateway Church here, uh, not, not too far away from us. And he's been a friend for years. And uh, I went through a real painful year in 2018 where church leadership was, uh, was really hard for me. <laughs> uh, and Ed was concerned for me. He knew, he knew some of what, what had happened at a high level and just reached out and just wanted to encourage me. And he reached out one day and said, hey, come over. Come over to my office. We'll just chat. I want to just encourage you. And, and I went over, and, you know, I, I, I felt hurt, and, uh, you know, it's just easy to kind of wallow in self-pity when you feel like you've been hurt or wounded. And something happened to me when I drove onto the parking lot. Their church building was, was new. And I'm dealing with everything I'm dealing with already, and I'm trying to have God's heart. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be a person of forgiveness, and I want to land in that place. And then something else happened. And man, when we're vulnerable, we are vulnerable for the enemy, our spiritual enemy who's very real. And I do not generally in my life struggle with jealousy. It's just never, I, there, there are struggles in my life. There are things that God works on in me. Jealousy has never really been one of them. I don't look at cars and think, ah, I don't look at houses. I just, it's just not been a struggle. And that day, it took me a little while to figure out, what is this? Uh, Ed's a friend. We chat. We email each other. We have lunches. And, and I realized I'm jealous. And it was just the beginning. And I knew. I knew the Holy Spirit's voice. It's like this awareness, like, Brad, this is a warning. This is the beginning of something. And it's just creeping into you. And this was a couple-week process. And I drove, I drove past their church one day, and I felt it again. It was like physical. It's like I physically felt this something embodying me as I got close to the traffic light in the intersection. And I felt myself not wanting to look. Like, what? That's, that's crazy. I'm in the car by myself, not looking at a building. Like, and I knew that moment, two weeks into this, it's like God's spirit. I didn't hear anything. I didn't feel. I didn't have goosebumps. But I knew. I knew the voice of God said, Brad, your way out of this, this couple week struggle of the beginning of jealousy is to pray. And I looked at the church and I said some version of God, take good care of Ed and take good care of this church and use them in our community. I mean, I think the prayer was maybe six or seven seconds long. And I'm telling you, something broke. It was like a chain fell off of me where the enemy wanted to pull me in when I was vulnerable, when I was hurting, and he was getting me to a place of forgiveness. It was like this second wave of some kind of a, and you know, in church world, you can say attack. It really did. It felt that way. And something broke for the good. And so for about five or six months, just, just a practice, whenever... I thought of Ed, or whenever I drove past the church, I would extend my hand, not if you were in the car with me, I wouldn't do this, because that would be weird. But alone, I would just hold out my hand towards the church and say, God, this is a good friend. Take care of him, and do your good work. 
through this church. I wasn't trying to be good. I was trying to be free. And I knew it. I knew in my spirit, this is God's path. God has given me this instinct. Fight it by praying. And man, did it work. Ed is such a good friend today. I mean, he's, he's always been, but we're closer than ever. And I told him the story a couple, couple years ago, and I didn't need to tell him. I didn't, it wasn't like I needed him to forgive me. I needed it to be like the final, the enemy will never get me. He'll never get me. He'll never make me jealous of another leader or of someone in my neighborhood. It's just not going to happen. I'm going to pray for them. I don't know if that's the beginning point for you. To combat and Ed never hurt me. So the, 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 the metaphor doesn't really work in that regard. There was never a wounding, never a hurt. But maybe for you, your beginning point is, I want to be free. I want to be a life giver. I knew in that traffic, in, in that, my heart, that God wanted me to lead in this community with integrity and to be a voice of good and beauty and hope. And if I allowed jealousy, to, if I ever allow anger or unforgiveness to define me, it limits me. It doesn't hurt the person you're upset with. It limits you. It stops God's flow of life and his voice and good from impacting others. And so I want you to be free. Name the hurt. Tell God. It's okay that you remember it. Name it remembering that you need forgiveness. You need God to forgive you. There are plenty of words, there are plenty of things, there are plenty of thoughts, there's plenty of regrets. We all understand. We can, we can get there pretty quickly and be empathetic, like, wow, we're human, I'm human, I've hurt other people. God, I've needed your forgiveness. Talk this out with God, but don't let the lie that you have to forget, completely forget, in order to be in forgiveness. That's not true. You actually have the ability to, in moments, remember, be tempted to have deep anger again, hate. You can have those moments and choose goodwill, hope for the person, love. And maybe for you, it's a prayer. God, I don't know what's going on in their life. I don't feel drawn to be particularly close to them right now. I don't know that that would be healthy for me. But God, I ask you to do good. Work your good. Work your healing. You will be more free when you pray those words. You will walk into your Monday and Tuesday. You will walk into that work meeting, into a family conversation with more of the voice and heart of God that people will follow and that people are desperate for. So Jesus, may you work this deep into our, our souls. We all know what it is to be hurt. Some of us have been hurt in ways that are hard to speak to. They're, they're, they're unspeakable. But God, not forgiving is only hurting ourselves. It's only limiting who you want to be in us, in our actions, in our words, in our ability to offer good and hope to someone. We are not free to be the image of God when we're not forgiving, when we carry unforgiveness. May we begin the journey into that realm of freedom by recognizing we need you, Jesus, to forgive us. Forgive me. Right now, in your seat, or if you're listening later online, 
wherever you are, ask Jesus, please forgive me for my selfishness, my need for control, for the words that have wounded. Forgive me, Jesus, for not being your image in this world. And help me to understand how someone can develop pain, hurt in their own life where they can wound, and they've wounded me. And with that empathy, God, work deep into me goodwill. Work good in them. Do something in their life that is healing. And Jesus, I know, I know standing here on this platform, I know that you are going to extend more good and hope and healing and life from our church and from this community into our broken world. And I'm so grateful that we get to be a part of it. Thank you for this privilege. Thank you for your freedom and your healing.